turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 26 to the end of the chapter. Our subject this morning, God's creation of humanity. And uh, all verses in Scripture are important. These really, though, are foundational. What it means to be human is a big deal. Let me read what the Bible says about what it means to be human. Then God said, let us make man, that word man means humanity, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, if you can have your Bibles open at Genesis 1, and there are some headings in the service sheet for you to read or scribble on. Now, throughout this series on Genesis I have consistently tried to argue that the fundamental clash, if you like, of worldviews is not between creation and evolution, or between creation and science. There is, between creation and evolution, creation and science, no intrinsic fundamental clash of worldviews. The true clash is between creation, a creator God who made the heavens and the earth and humanity, and the range of theories that you might describe as accidentalism. Now, theories of accidentalism, and I tried in the series to be as careful and as fair as I can in explaining what I'm not particularly uh, expert in. But broadly speaking, theories of accidentalism purport that the universe that we live in and the bodies that we live in are the product of the collocation of atoms or genes or processes that are scientific 
and impersonal, that do not have behind them divine design or a creator God. Broadly speaking, that's the theory of accidentalism. Scientific processes plus time plus chance. Imagine a dinner conversation that over the soup course, somebody gets it on to the subject of a Christian worldview of creation over and against accidentalism. And you discuss together how the universe was birthed. And so-called Big Bang theories and so on and so forth are the product of discussion. It's an interesting discussion. It's relatively neutral. And then as the dinner party moves on, you get to the main course. And the discussion moves from the beginnings of the universe to how various species of plant or tree or fish or the oceans or the waves, the moon and the stars were created. And the discussion comes quite focused. How did the hammerhead shark get its hammerhead? And there's a kind of theistic worldview on one side of the table, God created it. And there's an accidentalism view on the other that it was the product of processes over time. And again, the discussion is pretty uh, neutral. But then over the pudding, somebody has the bottle to move the subject onto humanity. And it becomes a lot more personal. And somebody suggests, how is it that human beings have rational capacity or moral capacity to tell the difference between right and wrong? Or creative ability that is simply astonishing? Or the ability to communicate? Somebody says, you know, there are these great programs on the telly about how whales communicate. They make noises. But let's be honest, our ability as human beings to communicate is astonishing. Somebody says, well, we have the capacity to be conscious of what is transcendent and worship God, and we have capacity for relationships, to love. And then the person who holds the accidentalism worldview says, well, that's just pie in the sky. We are like the hammerhead shark, the product of scientific processes, collocation of atoms and gene selection, time, chance. One day, we will die. And life is ultimately meaningless. And to be fair, these kind of conversations do not often happen in dinner parties because we rarely have the confidence to stray on to the conclusions of these kind of theories. Now, you may conclude that accidentalism or a theory such as that is sadly all there is. And we've got to come to terms with the fact that as humanity, we would love there to be something better. And we just need to come to terms with it.
Now, let's look at the Christian worldview again. And in particular, what it means to be created as human beings. Now, if you look with me at the text of Genesis that we read, the author works really hard to make it clear to us that humanity is special, unique, different. One of the things we do in our culture, we'll get to the reason why later on, is we downgrade humanity. We downgrade each other. You are very special in the eyes of God. Way more special than any animal. Let me show you how the author makes that clear. All through Genesis 1, there's a phrase that occurs, let there be light, plants, let there be. When it gets to humanity, look what it says in verse 26. Not let there be, but let us make. It's different. That verb that we translate make or create is the Hebrew verb bara. It is used very sparingly in the Bible. It is used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. God created bara, the heavens and the earth, the whole thing. It is used one other place in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, the creation of humanity. In verse 27, it is used three times. God creates humanity. It's different for us. At the end of his assessment of his created work, in each of the days of creation, whatever that means, and we've looked at that in previous talks, God looks at what he has done and says it was good. But with humanity, verse 31, he saw that it was very good. And I guess most obviously, the sixth day, the creation of humanity, is the final day of God's creative work. When humanity is created, God has a rest. Or when humanity is created, creation gives over to what the Bible means by rest, which is the perpetual goal of creation. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, and God rested from the work that he had done, or to paraphrase, when God had created humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, his work was done. So it is clear from the text of Genesis why humanity, or the fact that humanity, is special in God's creation. So what is it that is special about God's creation of humanity? Now, at this point in the talk, and I said this in the first service and people confirmed it afterwards, many of you, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, and there will be Christians here, most of us, but there will be people here who are not Christians, 
who are interested, maybe skeptical. Many of you will be thinking that what I'm about to describe from Genesis 1 about God's creation of humanity is not the world that we live in. And you're right. But let's wait a little bit till we get there. Let's consider what God created us to be. And the word that, or the phrase that describes how special we are is in verse 26 and in verse 27. Look at verse 26. God said, let us make man, humanity, in our image, after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is so special about humanity is that we are created in God's image. As humanity, we reflect what God is like. Trees don't. Oceans don't. Whales don't. Humans do. You and I reflect what God is like. Now, that is fundamentally an incredible thing. It is a wonderful thing. Now, I've tried to express what being created in God's image means, and I've given two words to describe it, dignity and responsibility. To humanity, God has invested great dignity, and to humanity, God has given great responsibility. Firstly, dignity. Now, that uh, is seen in a number of ways. Firstly, that we are rational. God has created in humanity the capacity for rational, intelligent thought. I wonder if when you saw the batlucks up here, if you heard little Naomi speaking in Mandarin to her father. It's very striking. And uh, I had a conversation with them outside, the children in Mandarin, not a conversation. It was one way, to be fair. (laughs) And, And the ability of these tiny children to learn to communicate because God has invested in humanity rational capacity. Now, our dog speaks. She has two words, woof and a kind of guttural sign of affection. Not much variation on the woof and the guttural sign of affection. God has given us rational capacity The rational capacity of this room is formidable. The rational capacity of any room of human beings is formidable. God can speak to us, and we can understand. We can speak to God. God has dignified us in our capacity for rational thought and speech. We are rational, and secondly, we are moral. Our dignity is reflected in our moral capacity to discern what is right and wrong. On the top of the old Bailey in London, there are scales of justice set above 
London's skyline. That's a reminder of the need for justice in our world, but it's a reminder of the innate human capacity to see and discern what is right and wrong. God has dignified us in making us creative. I've used this analogy before. One view of playing a violin is the gut of one animal scraping over the gut of another. But put, it, put the bow into the hands of somebody creative and you make music. Animals cannot play violins. Or sport. Even rugby neutrals admire the Kiwis. How is it that an 18-stone man on the wing, who's normally a prop forward or a second row, can dance down the touchline like a ballerina and touch the ball down? Because he's an all-black. Human creativity in sport. Architecture, science, or literature, or art, of a multiple form. God is dignified in investing in us creativity. Rational, moral, creative, and spiritual. As human beings, we have spiritual capacity. A whale or a leopard, or a tree, has no capacity for a consciousness of that which is transcendent, or to worship. God has invested within us the capacity to worship. And then, the final aspect that I want to touch on of how God has dignified us as humanity is a main focus of these verses in Genesis 1, that God has made us relational beings. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, not let me make humanity in my image. Let us make humanity in our image. The us and the our are referring to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the divine trinity. And now is not the time for an explanation of the trinity, but the point here in Genesis 1 is that God in his very nature is relational, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is us. Our. And that relational characteristic of what it means to be God is given to humanity as those who bear God's image. You and I were created for relationships on two levels with God and with our fellow humanity. Our relationship with God is that we can speak and worship God. But we were also created for relationship with one another, with our fellow humanity, 
And that is expressed in Genesis 1 in the fact that God created male and female. So God created man, humanity, verse 27, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God created humanity as male and female, equal but different, created for relationship with one another. And that is the way Genesis 1 illustrates what it means to reflect the image of God as relational beings. And we'll say a lot more about men and women and marriage and all that stuff in Genesis 2. So there's our dignity as humanity in God's creation. We are rational, moral, creative, spiritual, relational beings. And what of our responsibility, secondly, for the earth? Look with me again at the text. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And part of what it means to reflect the image of God is that we, verse 26, are to have dominion, literally rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. In our house, we have a pet Labrador. She is not the boss. That's a tiny reflection of how it should be in the world in terms of order. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Now, God is sovereign. And God alone is ultimately sovereign. But God's sovereignty, his dominion or his rule, is given to us under him that we might be as humanity, if you like, his vice-regents on the earth. His rulers on his behalf. What great responsibility, what privilege afforded to us. Now, you might remember from a few weeks ago when we looked at the whole chapter that creation is described as God forming and filling the earth. Days one to three, God forms the earth. Days four to six, whatever we mean by these days, he fills the earth. Forming and filling is the creative work of God in his rule. And what God gives to us as his vice-regents is the mandate to form and to fill, to carry that work of forming and filling on. Filling comes first, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When I read that verse in the first service, there was a little baby in the church that squawked just on cue. I kind of told the parents to prod them at that point. That's what it means, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I say that with all the sensitivity that in the world we live in, not all people can have children who would love to. Not all of us will marry and be able to have children. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's mandate to humanity is fill my earth with those who bear my image. 
filling and forming, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The creation has already been formed by God, but it needs nurtured and cultivated. As one writer puts it, God is the creator. We human beings are the cultivators. We have a mandate from God to steward the world's resources, to make this world as good as it can be, to work the earth. Work is a creation mandate. Just to reassure you, young people, students, that the world of work will exist in the new creation. So it's a creation mandate. Work is a good thing. Now, work is distorted, and we'll get to that in a minute, but work intrinsically is a good thing. To work the earth, to, 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 to toil on the earth, to, to, to cultivate the earth and enjoy it. That's the sense of verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree and seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. God has provided for us in his creation. He gives us everything we need. We are to enjoy its good fruit. Now, that is what it means for humanity to be created in the image of God. Dignity afforded to humanity, responsibility given to humanity. To humanity, God has given great dignity and great responsibility. But the world God created, described in this preface, is not the world we live in. I don't need to convince you of that. I was going to look at yesterday's newspaper and uh, quote to you a whole range of headlines that would indicate to you that the world that God created and humanity that God created that's not the world that we live in. I felt that having done so, that's just kind of patronizing. I don't need to do that. You know that as well as me. Look into your own life. Look into your own life. Reflect on the dignity that God invested in you. You're rational, creative, moral, spiritual, relational, capacity, like a mirror cracked like an image shattered. Still something of God's image there. But as C.S. Lewis described it, a glorious ruin. Look at God's creation. It still bears something of his fingerprints. But a glorious ruin. Now, think on the dignity of humanity. God created in us the capacity for rational and intelligent thought, but human beings often use their intelligence for ill as well as good, for evil as well as good. We have the capacity to hear God speak, but we choose, by and large as humanity, not to listen. We can speak to God, but we choose by and large as humanity not to. Human beings often speak ill of God. When I take our kids to um, Paradise, which is Easter Road in Edinburgh, to watch Hibs, 
It's very striking the language you hear on the football terracing or anywhere is blasphemous language very often. Our youngest son um, has, a, has it within him to turn around and talk to these people and I say, shh. Striking, isn't it? How, how we learn to speak ill of God. We all do. God created humanity as moral beings with a conscience, but we live immorally and even amorally. Denying the voice of conscience. Denying our instinct for equality, fairness, justice, all that stuff, whether at a global level or a local or a personal level. Human creativity in art, in literature, in sport, in music, in science, often still reflects the image of God in humanity. But often it is Godless in its expression, what we write and play and sing and do with scientific knowledge. It's contrary to God's design and purpose for humanity and the world. God's creation within us, bearing his image of spiritual capacity, has in the majority of humanity and in all of us, at one time at least in our life, led us to worship that which is created and not the creator God himself, whatever it is. And the dimension of God's image that is our relational capacity. We all have times in our life, and most of humanity still does, not have a relationship with the Creator. And all over our world, all over our city, even in our lives, Our lives are marred by broken relationships. We have lost our dignity. The image of God in humanity is ruined. And another dimension of that, we do not view our fellow humanity with the dignity they deserve. Many of you, some of you here, are experienced at working in different parts of the world, the great inequalities in our globe. People on the other side of the world may be on the other side of the world, but they are our fellow humanity. People who live a wholly different life from us in this city are not on the other side of the world, they're on the other side of the road. And they are our fellow humanity. And for us all, there was never meant to be illness and death. At a funeral recently, somebody asked me to say at the funeral that the person had died with dignity. I knew what they meant, but there is no such thing as dying with dignity. For death is to rob humanity of its dignity. Of course, I knew what they meant. And very many people in our world, and maybe our world has robbed you of this, 
you have absolutely no sense of self-worth or no sense that what you do matters or no sense of enjoyment or joy. It's a long time since you experienced joy. And yet God created you to experience nothing else. A glorious ruin, a shattered image, a mirror cracked, all because we have rejected God's rule and sin has entered the human heart, and we'll see that in chapter 3. God's image ruined, plain for us to see. Look out on the world, look into your life. But the Creator God, the God who dignified us and gave us such responsibility, promises to restore the image of God in humanity. That is the Christian message. A famous painting by Rubens hung in King's College Chapel in Cambridge. One night, it was defaced by somebody with a Stanley knife who scratched the letters IRA onto the painting. The next day, a notice appeared in front of the painting which read, it is believed this masterpiece can be restored to its original condition. And the restoration plan for God's greatest masterpiece, humanity, begins in Genesis 3. Down through the generations, the line of promises continues until what? Continues until God comes into our world as what? As a human being as humanity. Jesus Christ, God's Son, a perfect human life, a perfect sacrifice for sinful humanity. After the first service, I was chatting to somebody who wasn't a Christian, and he had not been convinced. He said to me, he would love this to be true. But he was convinced, he said, of one thing, of how it would have to be a man, a human that redeemed humanity. He saw the logic of the gospel. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He exhibited what it meant to be rational for God, he exhibited creativity. Let's not forget that he was a carpenter. That's at the heart of his humanity and his dignity. His relationships were perfect. His capacity for the transcendent was perfect. And he died as a sinless man thereby a perfect sacrificial death to restore humanity to God. He was raised from the death to give back humanity its dignity, resurrection to everlasting life. And through faith and trust in Him, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us 
and the day the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and he comes through faith in Jesus, a sign is put up against your life, which reads, it is believed that this masterpiece will be restored to its former glory. And if God lives in you by the Holy Spirit, that process of transformation has begun. One day you will live in a new creation, and your rational capacity and your moral capacity and your creative ability and your relational capacity will be as rational, as creative, as moral, as loving as the Lord Jesus. Now, here's how I want to land the plane. And in five minutes, we'll be done. Genesis is written to redeemed people. It's written for churches like us around the world to read and reflect on and be encouraged by. If you do not feel encouraged by Genesis, I've got it hopelessly wrong. Most of us in this room are Christians. Genesis says to us as redeemed people, as those in whom the Holy Spirit lives and is changing, with all your energy as redeemed people, in whom the Holy Spirit of Christ lives, give your rational capacity your ability to talk and reason. Do what you can with that to give God glory. Talk often to God. Listen to Him. God has given you astonishing gifts. Intellectually. Musically. Athletically. Use them for his glory. Show humanity what it means to be dignified as humanity. I came across a little book yesterday about Eric Little, the Flying Scot. If you don't know about Eric Little, read about Eric Little. He won the Olympic Games in 1924, and he could run like the wind. A great bit on the film when he stood on the top of Arthur's seat and he said, God made me for a purpose to go to China, interestingly. But God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. What Eric Little did is run like the wind, but he connected it to God's dignity in him as a Christian. Now, most of us are not like Eric Little. If you play sport, then do it with human dignity. Do it for God's glory. And use it to connect you with people who do not know the Lord Jesus. 
And when you go to work tomorrow, whatever it is you do, and you might feel it's awfully mundane and dull and boring, everything that we do that makes this world tick in some ways, we can do it for God's glory. Play a tiny part in showing the world what it means to be dignified, responsible people. And as Christian people, we must not be silent on issues like abortion and euthanasia. As Christians, we must not be silent in this city to those who have no homes and no food. As Christians, we must not be silent personally when we see somebody on the street who looks like us, but who is so very different from us. They are not. They are image bearers of God. But above all else we do, we need to do one thing. And you need to see this, and I hope you do see why this is important. The only people who will be in the new creation are redeemed people. Not people who have been affected by redeemed Christian communities showing God's dignity and exercising godly responsibility toward them. They will be captivated by that or caused to ask questions by that or loved by that, but the only people in the new creation will be redeemed people. And therefore, our primary job, our primary mandate in this world is to lead people to the Lord Jesus, to tell people of Him in whom their dignity can be given back to them. And to us as a church family, as we engage on the gospel project, God has many people in this city whom He wants to bring into His kingdom And he wants us to tell them about Jesus. God has a plan to redeem humanity. It is being fulfilled. And he wants us to play a part.